what we hear in uh, God's Word today, in Hebrews chapter 2, is answers to big questions. Questions like, what does it mean to be human? And what does it mean that Jesus should become human? And how does he transform our humanity? I hope you've got your Bibles open in front of you in Hebrews chapter 2 and from verse 5 we pick up where we left off last week. Remember what the writer was saying then, Jesus is better than angels. But now he reveals something extraordinary about Jesus as he reminds us of some of the something extraordinary about ourselves. In verse 6 he's harking back to Psalm 8, a psalm that wonders at the awesome greatness of God. But as much as that, how privileged a place uh, as humans it is in his creation. The psalmist is incredulous, as if to say, how is it that you even notice us, let alone entrust us to rule over your creation? Verse 6, though. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him you made them a little lower than the angels and you crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet it's extraordinary but it was always god in god's intention the reasons there back you can read it in genesis 1 our glory and honor is that god made us in him his image not the same as him but like him, and like him, in fact, like no other creature in creation. It's reinforced by what commands humans to do at creation, to fill the earth and subdue it. So too, the psalmist in Hebrews chapter 2 confirms it. The world is meant to be subject to our human rule. He has put everything at our disposal, everything under our feet. But that doesn't fit with our experience quite, does it? So we read halfway through verse 8. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. We try to rule and subdue the world we live in, and in many ways we do a good job observing, understanding and creating while in other ways we really stuff it up. Uh, what with conflict and inequality and self-destruction. How can the two coexist? The answer is sin. Our sin, your sin and my sin and our collective sin. We who were made to be subject to God try and subject him to our self-rule. You could think of it uh, like us as children uh, tying up the adults in our home and eating whatever we like and doing whatever we like and instead end up wrecking our, uh, ourselves, wrecking our homes and snubbing our parents. But here's the thing. Jesus became one of us to keep and fulfil God's intention for all of us. Now, he could only do that if he was truly human. 
Verse 9 puts it in terms of Jesus being made a little lower than the angels for a little while, using the language of Psalm 8, the writer's saying he became one of us. Or in verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, saying as we are human, so he became so too by his birth and life and death in this world. And that's extraordinary to stop and dwell on, isn't it? Uh, Sure, it's humiliating for God in all his awesome wonder, but at the same time, it's exalting for us that God would join us and live among us in flesh and blood as one of us. If you're ever tempted uh, to think in lowly terms of uh, yourself or uh, of others, Here's what God says to us. Here's what he thinks of making us in his image and giving us responsibility to rule the world under him. I am willing to join you in your humanity. Now, we're being told all this, as I expect you noticed as we heard it read, not because we could afford to be left in our humanity as it was. We couldn't but so he could die to save us. Now let's revisit those words we read before and see in it the absolute necessity of Jesus' humanity. Uh, For him to be able to do for us what we need done most. Here's a couple of verses in verse 9, from verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Or again, when we come to verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. There's a third time when we get to verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Do you see what this means? Where we were meant to be crowned with glory and honour, the risen Jesus is crowned with glory and honour through his life of perfect obedience to God, which included his death where in our sin and death, separation from God would be our just desert. But Jesus dies so that he might take the punishment of death for everyone. And where we were held in slavery to death and the lies of the devil, that we could subject God to our wills and wants and were afraid of death, Jesus is our champion 
who defeats our enemies, as David defeated Goliath so that all Israel was victorious over the Philistines, so Jesus frees us from slavery, shines a light on and overcomes the lies of the devil and takes away our fear of death. And when you stop and think about it, now that God's word has told us, of course, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If the price of sin is death, in order to experience that death, you have to, in fact, be fully human. You wouldn't get an electrician to do heart surgery on you, uh, and you wouldn't get a plumber to deliver your kids, uh, because the consequences could be catastrophic. They're just not qualified. But what we're being reminded again today is, Jesus is. He became one of us so he could die to save us. The writer of Hebrews puts it again this way from verse 17. For this reason he had to be made like us, like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What is the role of the high priest in the Old Testament? Uh, it's to stand before, God's, before God on behalf of the people. It's to represent the people as one of the people. It's like the Australian ambassador in uh, Washington, who is an Australian and who stands before and represents Australians to the government of the United States. In the same way, Jesus had to be fully human like us in every way, otherwise he couldn't truly live the perfect obedience to God we needed him to live in our place. Otherwise, his death wouldn't be the satisfactory sacrifice in payment of the consequences of death. We deserve to die. But he was, and he did. Jesus is therefore our high priest, yours and mine. And like we saw in 2 Samuel, where King David uh, was huge as God's king, but he was only a shadow of what was to come, in the same way, the high priests of the Old Testament, they went through the motions but couldn't do anything permanent. And Jesus blows them out of the water as our great high priest. The way it's described in verse 17, the climax of what he does is make atonement for our sins. We were only talking about atonement two weeks ago, weren't we? At the end of 2 Samuel where we need God's antidote to the consequences of sin. We need God's holy anger against sin turned away from us. We need atonement, as it's called. The, otherwise, the Lord's anger would destroy us in judgment unless it could be turned away, deflected and satisfied. Jesus, through his death, does just that. Do you feel the weight and joy of that? Jesus didn't become one of us, fully human, to affirm us where we were, 
how terrible would it be to continue in our sin? Uh, what with all the conflict and inequality and self-destruction, it would be a miserable way to live. And hopeless too, where all we have to look forward to is the judgment of God and death itself. God in his great plans. Jesus in his mercy and faithfulness comes through on this plan so we might share in his life, true life, and in his great glory so it may be our glory. That's the transformation Jesus brings. And so the writer addresses you and me when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, and says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. While we talked about Jesus sharing in our humanity, his death to save us means even more. We are now his holy brothers and sisters. We've been set apart by God, for God and from the judgment of sin. We share in his heavenly calling where our names are written in the book of life for all time. And we are now, as Hebrews says at the end of chapter 3, verse 6, not just servants or slaves in God's house, but part of the very family. God has gathered us as his church and Jesus himself dwells among us. Whatever way you or I could think of being restored to God in his goodness or of rightly reflecting the image of God and ruling the world as he intended, not one of those ways as people come up with come anywhere close. In fact, they all reflect poorly on God's true way. We can be lost in our achievements in family life or among our community or our attention to being religious, supposedly well-meaning, but gravely misdirected. Even being an Israelite of the Old Testament for all of its value, none of them compares. Jesus is better. Better than angels, as we heard in chapters 1 and 2, or here at the beginning of chapter 3, better than Moses. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on his divine power and mercy. Fix your thoughts on his humility. Fix your thoughts on his suffering and temptation. Which begs the question, and have you noticed how prominent Jesus' suffering has been? He saves through suffering. I don't think it's an accident at all. I think it's here because those who first heard Hebrews, and of course you and I here today, we experience suffering. Suffering of different sorts, arising for many different reasons, but with this in common. Suffering tempts us to choose another way, an unholy way of avoiding suffering. But fix your eyes on the one who came among us, 
It was there in chapter 2, verse 10. He is the pioneer of our salvation, the champion of our salvation, made perfect through suffering, who wins the battle on our behalf. Or in verse 18, listen to this great verse. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was 100% qualified to save us because he could suffer in this way as one of us. Of course, he suffered as the only person who never sinned and we'll be revisiting what we've heard here today in chapter 4, where in that case, we're left in any doubt. It's made explicitly clear that he was without sin. But now, when you think about the challenges you face, whether it's the fear of sickness and death, or loneliness, or the failure to love God, doubting his compassion and mercy for us, or our regrets when we fail to love others by taking advantage of them and failing to serve them. Without God's intervention, isn't the temptation to turn our eyes away from Jesus? We turn to something else. We might turn to someone else. We might turn within into ourselves. But that's not God's way. Instead, Jesus is in every way willing and equipped to help us face them. He knows. He's not disinterested, not far off, not unaware of the temptations we face. Jesus understands us better than we understand ourselves. He empathises with our humanity. He has walked the journey before us so that there is nothing that we can experience or be afraid of or endure that he hasn't walked through before us as well. There is no temptation, none whatsoever that is outside of his experience. Now, I'm not saying, this Bible is not saying that we won't have a mixture of experiences, sometimes obeying, other times failing, that will still be our experience until Jesus returns. But at the same time, by his suffering and his obedience and his spirit at work in us, we may walk in the obedience and holiness that the Lord Jesus has won for us with forgiveness. And so we rejoice, giving thanks to God for that and choose obedience over convenience. Brothers and sisters, in our great elder brother Jesus, let me remind you today, as I remind myself, fix your thoughts on Jesus, fully God and fully one of us. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, your plans and purposes are uh, so often beyond our understanding. And yet, 
in your wonder and kindness, you have revealed this to us, your great plan fulfilled where you have come and dwelt among us in the Lord Jesus. Truly one of us, flesh and blood, who understands us, and not only that, has wonderfully loved and lived above and beyond us in true obedience to you that we might have life through him. We pray, Heavenly Father, that in our suffering, in our temptation, in our challenges, in our difficulties and in our joys, that you would lift our hearts, minds and thoughts, that they would be fixed on him. We pray this, that you would do this great work. Help us not be distracted. In Jesus' name. Amen.